It, uh, last week was, was a fun week. The passages, the stories we were looking at were so vivid. The message was just so clear. It was an easy sermon to preach. Uh, this week I haven't found it quite so easy. Uh, the stories are still vivid, but I struggle a little bit with what seems to be the message. And uh, I am... Um, well, we're going to be talking about suffering and death. Whenever you talk about these things, you are, are kind of walking in a jungle of, of misconceptions, hurtful theologies, uh, presumption. A lot of times people can be hurt badly by our response to them as they go through this suffering, as they face death. And passages like this can be so easily misunderstood and can cause that kind of hurt. So I want you to know that I walk carefully, and we're going to try to spend some time understanding as much as we can. I've got to admit, uh, apologize in advance for the inadequate treatment. There just isn't time to cover it as well as it would be fun to do. But uh, we're going to take a look at what we learned from these two stories. So look with me at Mark 5. Starting verse 21, we'll take another look at our Lord. The story that we're looking at, like I said, starts in verse 21. Let me read just the first four or five verses to get us started. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the shore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him fell at his feet. And entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. And he went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Now, uh, Jesus apparently has come back over the lake where he was on the other side uh, last week, healing the, the man with all the demons. We don't know if this is a day later or a week later or whatever. But once he gets back, the crowd starts showing up again. They're coming from everywhere. Jesus is getting ready to teach them by the shore. They're getting ready to to, uh, sit on the bank, and Jesus would probably get in a boat again and pull offshore a little bit. But a man comes up to him, a man named Jairus, and begs him to come with him because his daughter is dying. That seems pretty straightforward. But we're also told that Jairus was a synagogue official. More accurately, he was a ruler of the synagogue. And a ruler of a synagogue was the most influential and important man in a Jewish community. Back in Jerusalem, you had the high priests and the Sanhedrin, who were the the core of the central government. But out in the cities and the villages away from Jerusalem, it was the ruler of the synagogue who was the man in charge. He was in charge of, of administrating the synagogue, making the decisions about what was done, who had the opportunity to speak, what issues they addressed. And the synagogue was really the center of of civic and social and religious life. Now remember where or what the attitude was by the religious leaders by this time toward Jesus. See, they had already decided that he was a threat and that he needed to be eliminated. They had begun spreading rumors that he was demon-possessed. They had begun trying to undermine everything he said and did. They had already started plans to destroy him. And Jairus is a very important part of this religious leadership. So in order to come to Jesus, Jairus 
had some fairly major obstacles to overcome. He had to overcome his own prejudice. Jesus was a threat to him. And so he had probably already begun to suspect everything Jesus said and did to try to interpret it in the worst way possible and try to, to, to uh, spread rumor and, and, and uh, undermine everything Jesus was saying. And he had to stop that and to change the way he looked at Jesus in order to come to him. He had to overcome his pride. Here he was at the top of the heap. Very important man. Come into this nobody, this Johnny come lately. He had to overcome peer pressure. You know, what are his friends going to all think? They're going to think that he defected, that he betrayed them. Or they're going to think that he's a poor fool. And as far as they knew, he's, he's joining some weird fringe cult. He's gone off the deep end. He had to overcome his dignity, his sophistication. You know, here is a man in a fine, tailored, pinstripe robe laying at the feet of another man who's wearing a common denim robe of a carpenter. You know, Jairus had a lot to overcome in order to come to Jesus, but he had a lot of help, too. See, his little girl was dying. The, the term that he uses when he comes to Jesus is not the normal term for daughter. It's the diminutive term, the endearing term. My little girl is dying. You know, he had probably been to everyone and everything else. Nothing was helping. He was desperate by this point. And when it comes to a choice between his, his pride and, and his dignity and his social status, when it comes to a choice between all of those things and his baby girl... He says to hell with all of those things. Because hell is where they came from in the first place. See, he's come to the point where these things don't matter to him anymore. He sees them for the, the, the shallow things that they really are. I think here we get our first clue to understanding suffering. You know, here's a man who's sufficient in himself. He's at the top of the heap. He doesn't really have many needs. How is he ever going to face his need for Jesus? Face his need for a Lord? How is he ever going to realize that the things that he values really are never going to satisfy the deep longings of his heart? You see, misery is often second best to ultimate fulfillment. Far better than the distracting, unfulfilling little pleasures that we seek. George MacDonald said, If thou art not willing that God should have his way with thee, then in the name of God be miserable, till thy misery drive thee into the arms of the Father. See, often our suffering is an expression of God's grace. Now, we should not imagine that God enjoys our suffering, that he, he likes to inflict. Now, see, He hurts with us, but He's willing to endure pain with us in order that we might experience the, the higher good, the, the, the greater peace, the, the deeper joy that we never could have apart from Him. And, and don't suppose that suffering comes directly from his hand. Uh, sickness, disease, broken fami uh, families, teenage rebellion, uh, financial ruin. 
These things are not created by our loving Father. He uses them, but He doesn't invent them. He doesn't design them. They bear the trademark of the enemy. See, even though He doesn't use them, however, He's certainly able to stop them, certainly able to control them. So I don't think we excuse Him entirely. If something comes into your life, because he's chosen to allow it to be there. He's chosen not to veto it. So if something comes into your life, he is still the one to take it up with. But more importantly, and more clearly from Scripture, he is the one who can rescue you in the midst of it, who can take you through it and love you in the process. The, the sad truth is that most of us here really will never face our need for Him, as long as we can avoid it. We will do everything we can to maintain our independence from Him. We will give Him lip service. We will thank the good Lord in, in kind of a superficial humility. We'll come to church and sing the songs faithfully. But when it gets right down to it, we think we can go it alone. We don't really need Him. We know better than he does. It isn't until we hit the wall, until we come up against something that is so far beyond our ability to control, that we realize that we've never been in control, that it's been beyond our control all along. That's when we first face our, our inadequacy, our desperate need for him. I was talking to one of the guys that does counseling around here this last week, and he was telling me how many of the men whom he's counseled have refused to face the fact that their marriages were disintegrating until their wives had come to the point where they couldn't take it anymore, until their wives had started heading for the door. Fortunately, at this time, a lot of them wake up and they realize that this relationship that they thought they were so well in control of, they were absolutely not in control. They were so out of control, they didn't even understand there was a problem and they haven't a clue what to do about it. And at this point, fortunately, many of them turn desperately to the Lord and, and lay their lives before Him. I can't tell you how many of my friends that are divorced have told me as horrible and painful as that experience has been for them, that was the time they first really honestly faced their need for the Lord. I was talking to a guy recently who told me that he really hadn't had time for the Lord. Now, religion was nice for his wife and his children, but he had more pressing things to attend to. And as he was laying on the gurney, waiting to be wheeled into surgery, he confessed that he needed God. God is the only one that could go in there with him. Another couple uh, came and talked to me about their teenage son. And they also said they had never really needed God. I mean, they were good people, they were religious people, they were successful people. But it was only in facing a, a rebellion that they just couldn't understand, much less do anything about. It was only then that they started experiencing the freedom of admitting that they couldn't do it themselves, that they couldn't handle it on their own, that they needed someone more, someone bigger, someone better than them. You know, and the list could go on. Uh, financial people losing their jobs, friends 
who are, are, are discovering revelations of abuse in their own past or in their family, people dealing with emotions or, or behaviors that are beyond their control, people uh, uh, just dealing with, with confusion in life and really not able to get a grip on, on the pace and the direction of their life, people dealing with alcoholism. Like I said, the list goes on. And God has used these catastrophes, these hurts, this suffering, to draw people to Himself. And for those who have come through these things, they're seen as an extension of God's grace. One of the things that I am sadly certain of is that there are a lot of you here this morning who are listening who are still letting your pride keep you away. You're still afraid to get too far into this religion thing. You're afraid what your friends, your family, the guys you work with are going to think. You've already made up your mind that it would really be a bummer if God was in control. Just think of how funless and joyless that would be. You know, you don't really need Him. You can do it yourself. He's a nice ornament on your life, but you don't really need God. You may even be living a good Christian life, but you're living it on your own power. You've never let Him live it through you. You've never admitted how desperately, completely you need Him. Well, if that's the situation you are in, I pray for you. But you probably don't like what I'm praying for you. Because I pray that God would corner you. That He'd bring you to the end of yourself. That, that, that you would be miserable until you really, really do give Him control. Otherwise, you're going to go through life missing life. You're going to go through life settling for a shallow emptiness, for a, for a, a quiet despair rather than the abundant life that Christ came to give us. Let me encourage you, there's no reason to wait for your world to come crashing down around you. You're not a dumb mule that needs a two-by-four between the eyes. At least I hope you're not. You can stop right now. You can turn to Him. You can tell Him you want Him, that you need Him. You can give Him control. And then be ready to do what he says. I don't think you'll have to wait long. My guess is that if you really give him control, there will be some relationship that needs mending. Somebody you need to go and ask forgiveness of. Something, some secret thing that needs to be thrown out of your life. Some, uh, some obligation that needs to be fulfilled. And as he tells you this, obey him. Do it. Demonstrate that you really have given control to Him. Now, if your world is already crashing down around you, don't resist Him. Right, let, me, let me back up a step and say that just because you're going through suffering doesn't mean you're resisting Him. It doesn't mean that, that uh, you're, you're keeping Him at arm's length. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Suffering does not mean you are sinning. The righteous suffer. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, I hope. But if you are suffering because you are resisting, pull out the white flag. You know, the Marshall Plan 
was nothing compared to the generous plan that your loving father has for his surrendering child. Don't resist. Don't let demonic pride or, or uh, concern about reputation keep you from him. And he loves you. That's why he's coming after you. If he, if he hated you, if he didn't care, he'd just let you go until it was too late. So don't curse him for his love. Don't hate him because he loves you. Follow Jairus' example. Fall at his feet. Get rid of all of that garbage, all of that trash that keeps you from him. Just throw it away. It's just garbage. Come and lay before his feet. Well, that's what Jairus does. And I want to take a look now at what Jesus does in response. This may not be terribly encouraging. It may not... uh, entice you to trust him but I think eventually it will look look at verse 24 I'm going to read about down to verse 34 and he went off with him that's Jesus going off with Jairus and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse After hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see a multitude pressing on you. And you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. Now, Jairus, a very important man, a very prestigious man, a very wealthy man, had come to Jesus desperate. There's an emergency. His, his little girl was dying. So Jesus and heads off with Jairus. And I could just see Jairus trying to, to move the crowds out of the way, filled with anxiety, trying to get there in time to save his little girl, anxiously pushing their way through. And as they're fighting their way through the crowds, Jesus stops. And he turns around and he says, Who touched me? And the disciples who are delighted that somebody as important as Jairus has finally come, this, you know, this is a break, Say, Jesus, what do you mean, who touched you? And there are people pushing on you from all sides. What are you talking about? Come on, we've got an emergency here. Let's go. And Jesus just stands there and looks at the crowd. You know, poor Jairus. I can imagine what he's feeling right now, the tension in his chest. And this woman comes forward, falls at Jesus' feet, tells him the whole truth. Now realize this lady had a lot of obstacles to overcome herself in coming to Jesus. We're told that she had had a vaginal hemorrhage for the last 12 years. It's like a 12-year menstrual period. And she'd been to every doctor she could find. Verse 26 says it didn't help her at all. She spent all her money. In fact, she was worse than when she started. Now some people think this is a dig at physicians. But I don't think that's Mark's intention here to lambast physicians. I think his point is that this was beyond what medical knowledge, what medical science could do for her. There's a limit 
to what medicine can do. There always has been. There always will be. And even though their procedures and methods probably seemed very archaic, and they were, I wonder what our procedures and methods are going to look like 2,000 years from now. I doubt if there are any physicians in this room who would like to stand before a medical board in the year 4,000 without any more knowledge than they have right now. They'd look awful silly. And, and some of the cures that they were uh, they used for this particular malady are rather silly. Uh, for one, there were 11 cures in, in the uh, Talmud listed. One of them is fairly straightforward. Put some powdered rubber, some alum, and some leaves from a crocus in a goblet of wine and drink it. Pretty easy. Another one consisted of cooking some Persian onions in a little bit of wine and then administering it while shouting, Arise out of your flow. Another one that doctors recommend was to shock the woman, have somebody jump out of the bushes at her. Another one was to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen cloth. And the one I found the silliest, and I read this, I quote this directly, carrying a barley corn taken from the dung of a white female donkey. You know, these seem silly, but again, 2,000 years from now, how will they be looking at what we're doing? The, the, the point that Mark wants to make is that as good and as valuable and precious as medical knowledge is, and it is valuable and precious, as good as it is, it's ultimately inadequate. That need will arise in each of our lives that is beyond the competence of modern medicine. And this woman had tried everything. And she was out of money. Her insurance had run out. She was broke. And now she was poor as well as afflicted. And so she got the idea to go to Jesus. So she sneaks up behind him. She touches his robe. And immediately she knows it's happened. She's healed. And finally somebody with a strong enough magic to take care of her and she sneaks back into the crowd. Her, her intention was just to blend back in and get out of there. You know, why all the sneaking? Was she embarrassed? Well, probably. But there was more to it. You see, in Jewish law, anyone that had any kind of discharge from their body was unclean. And therefore, they could not take place in any worship. They couldn't be around other people because if they were within a certain distance of another person, that person became unclean. Or if they touched something that the other person would then touch, that person would become unclean and therefore cut off from the worship and from society. See, this poor woman had not only been ill for 12 years, she had been ostracized. She had been isolated for 12 years. And pushing and shoving her way through this crowd, she knew that if these people she was pushing and shoving her way through knew that she was unclean, they would have been furious. They would have been angry at her because she had contaminated them all. And, and what's more is here is this, this, righteous he, this righteous healer, this rabbi. How could he have anything to do with her? I mean, if he knew she had touched him and made him unclean, He'd have been furious. He'd have sent her away. He'd have been angry at her. He would have rejected her. So she snuck in and she snuck out and she almost got away with it. Jesus stops and turns around and said, Who touched me? 
Now, why did Jesus do that? Was he, was he ignorant of, of the shame and the embarrassment this poor woman would feel? Or, or was he just irritated that somebody would touch him like that without permission? I don't think either of those are true. I think what's happening here is Jesus has to let her know two things. First of all, she thinks this was magic. He says, no, it's not magic. It's faith. You trusted me. You believed in me. And you came to me. And that's exactly what you should have done. And secondly, see, if he had just let her blend back into the crowd, she would have always thought she got away with something, that that she had... She had stolen something from him. That had she come at him honestly and straightforward, he would have rejected her. Jesus needs for her to see that he wasn't upset with her, he was delighted with her. That he embraced her, he accepted her. See, she needed the deeper, the greater healing of being accepted by Him just exactly as she was. Well, her problem was not pride. Her problem was an overwhelming sense of unworthiness. And that can be just as great an obstacle as pride. You know, many of us, many of you, feel unworthy to come to the Lord. You feel like you've got to get your act together. You've got to clean it up. You've got to solve those problems that just won't go away. Then you can come to Him and He'll accept you. But right now, He'd be disgusted with you. He'd send you away. He wouldn't want to be contaminated by you. It's just not true. You know, how silly it would be to think that a doctor would only see patients who've already cured themselves. See, He loves you and wants you just the way you are with those gross sins and habits, with, with those weaknesses and desires. Ran into this poem a couple years back. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's all he wants is for you to realize how badly you need him and to come and lay yourself at his feet and be like this woman, totally honest. Not She didn't make excuses. She didn't justify. She didn't run away. She came and told him the whole truth. That's all he wants from you. Come and tell him the whole truth. Well, let's get back to Jairus. You know, what do you think he must have been going through right now? Here's Jesus stopping to talk to this woman. This social outcast. This, this poor person. And besides that, she's been sick for 12 years. It can wait. His little girl couldn't wait. She's dying right now. Man, if I was him, I would have bit through my lip by now. And, and, and I thought, when you trust Jesus, things get better. Here, he had humbled himself. He had fallen at Jesus' feet. Things don't get better for him. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? I can just hear the bitterness there. The word for trouble means to annoy or harass or bother. They say, Don't bother him anymore. It's too late. You can't do anything. You've wasted your time. Now, Jairus looked foolish in front of his friends. And then Jesus says in verse 36, 
But Jesus, overhearing or literally ignoring what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Jesus says, Trust me. Where does he get off saying, Trust me? He's just blown it. He's let this man down. His daughter has died. The very thing that Jairus was afraid of has happened. See, this is where the the mystery of God's grace begins. Often, He takes care of our fears, not by removing what frightens us, but by taking us right through them. And what we discover is as He takes us through these fears, as He takes us through the thing that we were afraid of, we discover His grace. We discover that it's it's inexplicable. There's no words for it. It's virtually incomprehensible. His overwhelming grace in the midst of those fears. The fears are gone. We know He is in control. We trust Him like we never could have before. In verse 37, And He allowed no one to follow with Him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and He beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at Him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. You know, at first it may sound rather insensitive of Jesus to walk into a room full of mourning, suffering, grieving people. And he says, oh, come on, knock it off. Toughen up, you guys. Big girls don't cry. Why are you doing this? But see, that's not really what was happening. The words that are used here indicate this was not genuine grief. Jesus never despises real grief. You see him in, in uh, the story of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus when he's talking to Martha and Martha is heartbroken because of her brother's death. Jesus is not unaffected. Jesus weeps. His heart breaks for her. Even though he knows he's going to bring Lazarus back to life. His heart breaks because her heart is breaking. He's affected by real grief. But these people were just putting on a show. The words used talk about chaos and and causing an uproar and just causing a, a commotion. They were putting on a show for Jairus, this important man, and showing... How, how sorry they were for him, trying to impress him. And you can see the superficiality of their grief and how quickly it turns to laughter at Jesus' words, how quickly it turns to ridicule. So Jesus gets rid of them all. Takes the mom and the dad and his three disciples, they go into the room where the little girl is. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Jesus walks in the room, takes the little girl by the hand, and says, Talitha kum. Now, those aren't magic words. Those are Aramaic words. Those... Aramaic is the language that Jesus and the disciples normally spoke. 
And when, when Peter was telling Mark this story, when he got to this point, the memory was so vivid, he could just hear Jesus speaking. So he reverts from the Greek back to his native Aramaic. He can still hear those words coming out of Jesus' mouth. He can still see in his mind's eye Jesus helping that little girl to her feet. And he can still feel the, the mixture of, of astonishment and indescribable joy as, as that mom and dad were hugging their little girl. And then Jesus says, don't tell anybody. You see, this wasn't done for show. This wasn't done to impress anybody. It wasn't done to show these people who were ridiculing how wrong they were. This was done out of compassion for Jairus. Jesus loved Jairus, and he wanted Jairus to know who he was. And Jairus, having trusted Jesus when it seemed too late, when it seemed stupid, ridiculous, learned something he never could have learned any other way. He saw something he never could have possibly seen. There's a lot that still could be said, a lot more to this story. Uh, This would be a good story to spend several weeks on. There's so much more to say about Jesus' compassion, the way he treats this this family. More to say about death, how we as believers don't look at death as final, but as a sleeping, a sleep from which we awake into the presence of the Lord. And how selfish we are sometimes when we so desperately want our loved ones back from that. This passage has a lot to say about trusting Jesus when we're on the edge, when the earth is crumbling from our feet and it's a long ways down and we know we're going to fall. About trusting Him then. And what we learn, what we see, things we had no other way of ever knowing things that we still have trouble putting into words, things that He shows us. This passage has a lot to say about the fact that when we put our trust in Him, things don't get better necessarily. In fact, sometimes the suffering gets more intense, but we discover at the same time our understanding, our experience of God's grace grows more intense right along with it. Like I said, there's a lot more that can be said about this passage, But I want to leave all that and take a minute or two just to correct some of the misunderstandings that often come out of a passage like this. See, in these stories, we see Jesus use suffering to draw two people to himself. And in these two incidents, in both incidents, once they came to him, once they put their trust in him, he eventually removed the suffering. The the woman was healed. The little girl was raised to life. Are we there to there therefore to assume that if we continue to suffer, it's because we haven't put our trust in Him, or if somebody else that we know is suffering, it's somehow due to a lack of faith, a, a flaw in their faith. They're not believing strong enough. They're not believing hard enough. That if, if they or we would only get our faith act together, it would all clean up. No. That goes way beyond what this story can say. That may seem at face value what's saying, but it's not true. You see, there is suffering that comes from resistance, but there's a lot of other suffering 
And it's a logical flaw to assume that just because Jesus did a certain action in this case, that he will always do that action. We know that his character will never change. He will always be compassionate. He will always be accepting and gentle and loving. But what that character leads him to do in any given situation, we can't always predict. In fact, we rarely can. And to assume that we know what God is doing puts us in danger of being one of Job's friends who think they know it all but are only fools. You know, quite frankly, it bothers me that it doesn't work more consistently, that there isn't a a nicer equation that I can get my hands on and I can tell somebody, well, if you'd only do this, then that would happen. It bothers me that prayer for healing doesn't always work. And in fact, in my experience, it doesn't work more than it does work in the sense of that person being healed. That bothers me. It confuses me at times. But I know that God is good and that He is faithfully going to go through whatever we face with us. See, even if we did know what, some, what the lesson God was going to teach somebody through their suffering, it's not our job to say. That's God's job. Our job is to love them to support them through it. Our job is to embrace their suffering, to suffer with them, to weep with those who weep. Let God explain His lesson. Let God do His teaching. We can use a passage like this, because a passage like this does say that Jesus cares, that He will not send anyone who comes to Him away. That no matter what you're going through, you can turn to His love, to His compassion. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. And that's true. You can count on that. Let me uh, just end with a very brief story and a quote. There's a man recently whose wife was dying of cancer and he had read this passage and he believed as a result that Jesus was going to wait to the last possible second and then he was going to heal her. That if he would just believe all the way to the end that she would be all right, she, he would, God would raise her up. And so he refused to entertain any possibility that she might die. And he went and told everyone in the hospital, she's not going to die. Jesus is going to raise her. And he thought by the strength of his conviction that that faith would impress Jesus and he would do this. And on the morning that his wife died, a wise, sensitive nurse gently, tenderly told him, Jesus has healed her. He has raised her up. She is standing before him now, healthy and whole. The quote is by George MacDonald. What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all our smaller and lower needs 
lies in this, that they help drive us to God. Hunger may drive a runaway child home, and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his mother more than his dinner. Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other need. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, and some need is what drives us to prayer. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with our God, our eternal need. You see, we are presumptuous to say we know what God is doing in anyone's suffering. We may catch lessons in our own suffering, and we'd say, God taught me this, but the fact that I learned this didn't end the suffering. It wasn't an equation. Once I learn this, it can be removed. God has many things to teach. But one thing we can say, that over and around and under, whatever else God may teach us or anyone else through suffering and facing death, it's His desire through that suffering to draw us to Him, for us to run into His loving arms. Let's pray. Lord, we don't understand a lot of times. We get confused. We don't know why you're doing what you're doing. And like Jairus, it's all we can do to hold on and to trust you when it seems like you've blown it when it seems like you've let us down, when the very thing we were afraid of has happened. Lord, we get confused. We get disappointed. Lord, we want to trust you in the midst. And Lord, we want to be there for people who are suffering. We want to be supportive and encouraging, not presumptuous. We want to speak words of truth and of comfort. So Lord, just remind us of your character. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your ability and help us to just hang on, to trust you, to whenever we are facing suffering, to quickly run into your arms, to not hate you, to not curse you, to not avoid you, but to run to your accepting, loving arms. Amen.